Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 18 in our series for 2021, and today's date is Friday, June the 4th. First, I'll be talking to Yannick Yeko, founder and CEO and senior lending strategist of the SMSF Loan Experts. And we'll be talking about how people are using their SMSFs to invest in some really interesting and different and quirky investments, including accommodation for NDIS services. And I'll be talking to Rabobank economist Michael Ivory about the Chinese economy's recovery. But now, let's talk to Yannick Yeko. Now, Yannick, I understand there are thousands of Australians investing their self-managed super funds in independent living accommodation for NDIS. Uh, yes, that is. Well, NDIS accommodation, yes, that, that, is, um, that is correct. That, that, that is correct and very exciting. Oh, tell us about it. I mean, uh, why are they, why are they doing it? Is it what they they're investing them and leasing them out as NDIS accommodation? Yep, they they, they are. So they are um, procuring those new accommodations for disabled people. So they they're being purpose built um, for disabled people. That's the societal outcome that the government is incentivizing, and in returns for those super self managed super funds providing these specific type of accommodations. Uh, the government is basically, um, yeah, it, it's offering massive financial incentives for those investors. So financially, it just provides a yield, which you, you essentially can't find with any type of properties, any other type of properties in Australia at the moment. And it's a, it's a very ethical investment as you provide sort of that, that very needed type of accommodation and most often extract sort of, you know, young people out of retirement homes or wherever they had to live in the meantime. So yeah, it's, it's basically it's both um, money and ethical um, that that's driving people there. Tell t- so tell us about those yields. I mean, what yeah. sort of returns can they get? You're looking at double digits. So north north of ten percent is is extremely realistic. That 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 then depending on what type of disability you cater for, where you do it in a number of criteria, it might sort of go from that that sort of ten percent right up to fifteen sixteen depending on how you, you structure it and what type of property you're aiming for. Um, so that, that's the sort of yield that's on offer for the investors. It's a, it's a 20 years sort of agreement with the government that they're looking at. So it's, a, it's long-term and you've got 90, generally 90 plus percent. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Of that income is actually paid by the federal government, which you'd have to see as a pretty AAA supplier in terms of, you know, um, this type of agreements. But it is, it is enticing, um, to say the least. I bet it is. And uh, and what sort of tax incentives could you get for something like that? Tax incentives are limited. We, we're speaking, we're currently speaking to one of the big four and their tax team um, in order to ascertain that there, there might be some progress on that in the coming weeks from, from where we see it. Um, but at, at the moment, from a tax perspective, that's fairly, that's fairly neutral in terms of that, that is taxable income when it's received. Um, you get the tax benefits from having a brand new property, so the traditional negative gearing benefits and depreciations and whatnot. But because the property is producing so much income, you still end up with a tax bill um, as a result, depending which entity you've used to invest. SMSF do it a lot. They don't pay a lot of tax in the first place, but um, it's still taxable income. And I would, I would, I, I think there's also a drastic undersupply of housing for the sector, isn't there? It's 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 quite dramatic. If you if you look at it from an investment perspective, you've got a, a massive pipeline of potential tenants or participants in the NDR scheme that have been approved for housing financial support, but they just don't have the properties. So these are your potential tenants, if you like, for those properties. There, there are thousands of them, um, and it's it's you know put the money aside. It, it is a sad story. So those people at the moment are either living with elderly parents who are not really able to care for them the way that would be sort of ideal. They find themselves in retirement home. That's a very very common scenario where you get pretty young people who suffer a disability who find themselves in a retirement home environment, which is pretty depressing. But there's a lot of pretty sad stories that this is addressing alongside unlocking those massive returns. And so what about the investor needing to assess how to repay the loan? What are the issues there? Yeah, look, the, 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 lending, the lending is somewhat niche at the moment. So it's a, it's a fairly new um, structure in, in its current form. So it's, it's only... It's only new for lenders. The lenders are very slow to to move and adapt. Certainly, the big ones. So you've got a few of the smaller players that have moved into the the lending space pretty uh, wholeheartedly, which is great. So the progress on the lending front over the last six to nine months has been tremendous. Values are starting to understand those properties better, which was a huge issue when we started. That's getting much much better. So you secure the loan, and then from there. The, the key the key aspect of this investment is to make sure that you bring those property up in areas where there is the demand, where there is that undersupply that you referred to before. The moment you have a, a participant or two participants in the scheme moving into the property and you unlock the government payments, 
the, that, that covers for the loan repayments, any cost associated with the property and much, much more. So people are using this um, to deleverage aggressively, just using the, the cash flow from those properties or to reinvest aggressively, depending at what stage they're at in their investment cycle. And so, but the other issue too is that what kind of tenants are you getting? Are you getting would you be getting a better quality of tenant in there? Look, there are pros and cons. So there's four types of, four categories of disability that you can produce those properties for. And depending which one you're catering for, there's going to be a level of um, sort of specificity to the dwelling you've got to provide and requirements for that dwelling. Um, Depending which type of disability you're you're, you're catering for, you're going to get a different sort of breed of tenants. So I I suppose on the extreme end of that conversation would be people who suffer from uh, a mental health disability. And they come with their own set of challenges because you, you have to handle people who might be bipolar, might have some um, you know, rage uh, control issues, et cetera. And you need to have sort of, you need to have protocols in place and the people managing that are doing a fantastic job. It, it can be challenging. On the flip side, you, you get the, a lot of income, you get a lot of support from the government and you also have people who don't move houses much. So those people are not seeking change. A, there's not a great deal of supply for them to move to, as we, we've just ascertained, but also th- these are people that are not prone to changing. So you tend to have very long tenancy from these people. And the scheme is making allowances to assist investors cope with the downside of potentially having someone who might have a, a rage fit in the, the house. So those houses, for instance, would be built with what's called a break room, where a tenant can basically move in there and it's a safe room to, to have an episode and that's been built on purpose. That's the sort of accommodation we're providing these people, something that's suited for them. The furniture might be bolted to the ground so it can't, can't be thrown around and hurt themselves or hurt somebody else, et cetera, et cetera. So I, th- I think when you weigh it all up, it's, it's more positive than negative. There are challenges, but I, I would say that the, the positive far, far outweigh the, 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 the few challenges that arise from having those participants in the house. And of course, the self-managed super fund would actually have to invest in the property with all the special features of the property that, that, to accommodate. That, 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 that is uh, correct. So you're spot on. One such property, um, generally speaking, the, the depending again which disability um, category you're you're aiming for, but the the additional cost for a dwelling to be built to those specifications, uh, from what we're hearing from builders and people on the ground tends to be in the vicinity of an additional $50,000 for a house or for an apartment. And a lot of that goes into the wall. So the, this property is also very smart, but there's also sort of physical features and fittings that need to be incorporated into the house. So when they're designed, just for example, to, to give you an idea of what's going in there to, to qualify, when the property is designed and you've got the features and fittings and everything is put on paper and we're ready to go ahead with a, a construction, there's a pre-certification stage where an independent certifier needs to look at the plans and the specs and everything and go, yeah, this is actually going to be fitting for uh, an NDIS or SDA property. And then there's a post-certification process when the house is finished, that independent certifier needs to go and visit the completed dwelling and make sure that it's been delivered as promised and that the property is suitable to be um, accepted in the scheme. So... Those, there's hard cost in building the property better and there's soft cost in services to get to that point for the investors. I'd imagine, though, that, uh, that there's a, it's a growth market, isn't it? I mean, there'd be a lot of self-managed super funds to be looking at this. There's a huge amount of interest. Um, we, if, if, you, if you look at it 
sort of months to months, we have more and more and more people that are reaching out saying, yeah, I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to do this. One of the challenges for self-managed super fund is that you can't, there's no secondhand market. Like nobody's selling those properties. So you, you, you bring them up, you have to be limited. Construction for SMSF is a challenge. So there's, that's a whole different kind of worm, which, you know, we, we have to work with. But uh, the interest, the level of interest is, is tremendous and it's growing months to months. At the moment, you can, you can put your finger on it. It's, it's quite exceptional. Why, why is that the case? Well, I think the, the word's getting out. Um, there are also a lot of property, for lack of a better word, pro- property sprokers that have sort of jumped on that bandwagon. Um, so the, the, the word is going out and people are sort of starting to have a sense of what's on offer and what can be achieved. And, and as the, the word is spreading, it's, it's just sort of a, a snowball type momentum that is building. I think you know, more and more people are hearing about those figures, hearing about the, the sort of ethical, societal outcome that's achievable there and it tick all the right boxes. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's literally just the word starting to spread, people starting to do it. And then they heard about, um, you know, the neighbor or the brother-in-law or whoever has done it. And then it, it just keeps spreading like wildfire once the, once the results are sort of in the bag. Well, Yannick, that's all fascinating. And uh, we'll be watching SMSF with great interest. Thank you very much for your time. Fantastic. Likewise. And now let's talk to Rabobank economist, Michael Ivory. Michael, what's your assessment of the Chinese economy? It seems to be rebounding quite strongly. Well, um, what isn't when you look at base effects? If you consider how poor things were this time last year, anything you're going to get this year is going to look better. So I don't really take anything that we're seeing at the moment anywhere, not just in China, with more than a pinch of salt. I, I really think we're not going to get the kind of numbers that we can take seriously until 2022 and possibly, being a bit bearish, 2023. I mean, the chances are that while there's been a big rebound now, that might modify itself further down the track. Is that what you're saying? I mean, if, because you have such a low base, you're going to have this very, very high growth number this year. And that's true, again, for many countries. But if you look at the underlying dynamics, they're far from positive. And just to take a step back for a moment, almost everywhere around the world, prior to COVID, we were talking about this new normal, secular stagnation, growth going lower, inflation going lower. You know, what are we, what are we going to do to get out of it? Then we have a pandemic. We have radical policy to try and keep things going during that pandemic. We emerge from it, and in only a few locations are we actually seeing any serious signs of the government maintaining that pace of stimulus or even upping it. The US is one, for example, where we've had very big news from that front, you know, just overnight again. Nothing from China. In fact, if you look at anything uh, Chinese, you actually see that they're leaning towards tightening the belt. The government is actually looking at deleveraging across different sectors. So where anyone thinks they're going to get this bumper growth from going forward, I, honestly, I'm perplexed. I, I think the, the poverty of analysis on China is just staggering. That, that is quite extraordinary. Uh, so you're saying we could be facing another two years till we see anything like the growth we would have hoped for? I don't think we're going to. Let me be <laughs> absolutely blunt. I mean, look, China can have any GDP figure it wants if they build enough empty apartments or unused infrastructure. It's as simple as that. If they build that, they can have as much as of it as they want. Um, but it's basically, um, it's a balancing item. If you look at GDP in Australia, for example, you know, you have the inventories, which are always sitting there on the GDP sheet. So provided your inventories hold up, 
GDP growth can, even if everything goes off of a cliff, right? So most of Chinese GDP is effectively inventory. It's just, you know, build another few million condos or another couple of roads or railways or a bit more industrial capacity. No one needs, you know, keep everyone employed. They can do enough of that. They're not doing any serious structural reform. Um, you, the demographics are an inverted pyramid that even they themselves are calling a disaster. There is a lingering, uh, you know, painful legacy of COVID right the way around the world, and China is no exception to that. They're aggressively cracking down on the one sector of the economy that was growing gangbusters, which was tech and fintech. Very, very aggressively cracking down on that. Where is this growth driver for people who have this fancy number that's going to keep growing at 6% sustainably? Now, I'm not saying it can't grow at that level, but as I said, it's just by building stuff nobody needs. So uh, we're going to see a lot of uh, empty uh, developments, empty, empty, empty cities in China going forward. Well, there'll be overcapacity of some sort. Whatever it turns out to be physically, there will be overcapacity. It's as simple as that. It's just a question of what kind of capacity they overdevelop. And, and of course, as I've been arguing for years, the flow through of that, Leon, is that the geopolitics gets messier and messier because you have a world which is basically saying, look, we China says, look, we've got more supply than demand. It has to go somewhere. It goes offshore, which means that industry in the rest of the world you know, suffers. Now, in, a, in an Aussie perspective, the long and the short of it is you've benefited from all this. The more empty stuff they build and unused stuff they build, the more iron and coal they buy from you. So, you know, happy days. But I keep telling people that if you're drawing a long-run chart of where you think the Aussie economy is going to be based on where you think the Chinese economy is going to be and you don't understand what's actually going on in the Chinese economy, you're going to be very, very wrong. And we've already seen one commodity bust in the past decade in Australia. We're currently on an up leg, you know, of another little bubble. Um, the long-run trend does not look good. It's not your friend. So even while iron ore is now at uh, huge prices, there's no guarantee it will stay at that level for some time because of what the issues with the Chinese economy. 100%. How can it? What are they going to keep building? Now, what does this, uh, what does this uh, leave issues like trade relations? Because it's been a bit fractious of late between Australia and China. And, of course, uh, there's an issue with America as well, with Joe Biden coming in. Well, I think trade relations in general, um, you know, with a few happy exceptions, are probably going to get worse and worse everywhere. Again, this is a long-run thesis of mine. I was flagging this back in 2017 when most people just put me in the corner and accused me of wearing a tinfoil hat. You know, If you look at it, these global problems of domestic inequality, which even in Australia, the RBA is now banging on about, despite the fact it's one of the biggest drivers via housing prices, and international inequality between you know countries that are winning, quote-unquote, countries that are losing. We have no idea how to square that circle. How are we going to bring the bottom up towards the top without punishing the top in every country? And how are we going to get the countries that are doing relatively well, i.e. the net exporters, to scale back what they're doing to let net importers buy less from them? I have yet to see any credible global suggestion of what we do. And we've seen this pattern play out throughout history. I mean, I'm a big amateur economic historian, and it always ends badly, Always. The only question is how badly it ends. And we're seeing a cold war between the US and China. We're seeing any number of trade spats. And of course, Australia has been dragged into that. We can get infinitely worse than this. Just wait until we start factoring in green technology, because everyone's now going to try and have a green stimulus except Australia. All of that's going to be made at home. Europe is saying it's going to be made at home. 
and has openly stated every dollar that they spend on that is going to be made in America. Well, what about all the excess capacities China has got in things like solar panels? What are they going to do? Just rot? You know, um, we haven't worked out how we redistribute the gains. And I don't see any sign that we are doing. Uh, meanwhile, the politics of the trade relations are just an interesting side comment then in view of the broader economic factors behind it. Well, they're all part and parcel of the same meta-narrative, which is really that the global system that, you know, we've had for decades is collapsing. It's collapsing very slowly. And, you know, the superstructure that's holding it together is still very strong in places. But it is buckling. You know, you don't elect a president like Trump in the US and then elect one like Biden, who just overnight is proposing doubling capital gains taxes and, and offering made in America stimulus presidents back to back like that against a system that's working for everybody. This is clearly showing it isn't working. And Australia being caught up in that is just uh, part of that fabric. I mean, I don't think you have in Australia as far as I remember, but Australia is pretty much like a deer caught in the headlights or a kangaroo or a wombat caught in the headlights at the moment because, you know, you, you've done so well out of the paradigm that existed for decades, which is, you know, this global free trade and this liberal world order, whatever you want to call it, alongside the booming China. So that when the US was doing well, you could look to the US for some kind of lift. China was always there as a pump in the stimulus and the rest of the world wasn't doing well. And there was always a sector of your economy that would just be lucky. Um, it's meant you haven't really had to face many hard choices. Um, you know, you managed to ride out the worst of everything that's happened. And, you know, Australia is in a great position in many, many respects. But it's going to get very, very uncomfortable going forward when you look at the fact that fundamentally the US and China are going to continue to clash over everything from economic policy to geostrategy, which, of course, is you know, intricately linked, uh, you know, in, linked to the hip. You know, Taiwan is the central fulcrum around this. And, you know, Australia is aware of this. I mean, I, I was the headline just the other day, your former defence minister saying you'll be at war with China in five years. Does anyone project forward optimistically into the future as a businessman? I mean, come on, let's be realistic. If, if, if the pollies who have got an inside view on, on geopolitics are saying that, the economy should be paying some kind of attention. Logically, it should be. Right, okay, okay, indeed, indeed. And so, I mean, that's going to be quite, quite a striking thing to watch out for. Well, Michael, uh, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, the Australian economy expanded in the March quarter, data from the ABS showed. GDP grew by 1.8% on a quarterly basis in the first three months of the year, taking annual growth to 1.1%. Economists have been expecting March quarter GDP growth of 1.5% and annual growth of 0.6%. In the December quarter, GDP climbed 3.1%. And the lockdown in Victoria is costing the economy about $100 million a day, according to the Federal Treasury. Secretary Stephen Kennedy said the cost of lockdowns, while disruptive, was not as high as estimated last year because businesses were adapting their operating models. Treasury's estimate is for a generic metro-only lockdown in a major city, whereas Victoria's lockdown is statewide. Dr Kennedy said the key to minimising the economic damage was to suppress the virus. And the rampaging housing market is powering through concerns about a resurgent coronavirus outbreak in Melbourne, with home prices rising nationally by 2.2% in May. Housing markets around the country are seeing the benefits of low interest rates and easy credit, with May's rise even stronger than in April, when home prices lifted by 1.8%, according to CoreLogic's National Home Value Index. But the May rise was weaker than the 32-year high recorded in March, when values surged 2.8%, as affordability concerns started to put a break on some markets. 
Dwelling values were split with Sydney up 3% in May and Melbourne rising 1.8%. Brisbane was up 2% and Adelaide rose by 1.9%. Perth homes increased in value by 1.1% while Hobart leaped 3.2% and Darwin was up 2.7%. Canberra rose 1.7%. And consumer confidence declined 2.5% last week as a seven-day COVID lockdown was announced in Victoria on May the 27th. Counterintuitively, confidence was down by more in Sydney and Brisbane than it was in Melbourne. All of the confidence sub-indices fell. Current financial conditions fell by 3%, while future financial conditions softened 2.4%. Current economic conditions lost 0.5%, and future economic conditions dropped 4%. And Australian farmers are on track to produce a second consecutive bumper winter grain crop, despite the mice plague eating out paddocks just seeded in parts of New South Wales, according to Rabobank. The agribusiness banking specialist is forecasting an increase in grain planting around Australia, driven by favourable seasonal conditions and strong commodity prices that sees lasting well into next year. With summer crops already harvested and much of the winter crop in the ground, the Rabobank forecasts put farmers on track in 2021 to reap about $15 billion from the land. Based on average seasonal conditions from here until harvest, Rabobank is tipping Australia to produce 28.9 million tonnes of wheat, 10 million tonnes of barley and 4.1 million tonnes of canola. It is pencilled in exports of almost 20 million tonnes of wheat, 5.5 million tonnes of barley and 3.1 million tonnes of canola. Our male accounting partners are paid a staggering 60% more on average than women partners, according to Chartered Accounts Australia New Zealand's latest membership remuneration survey. While pay is equal or higher for women in junior accounting positions, the gender pay gap widens in more senior roles. The gap is the largest for partners in accounting firms, where men earn $292,000 on average, while women earn $181,000. Female chief financial officers make $53,000 less than the $305,500 their male counterparts take home each year. The gap is more acute at senior levels due to the size of remuneration packages, which include base salary as well as bonuses, share issues and equity distribution. The figures are based on a survey of more than 4,500 CAANZ members working across private accounting firms, large corporations, academia and the public sector. Nearly 7 in 10 women believe a gender pay gap exists compared to just 3 in 10 men, according to the survey. For CA members in non-permanent jobs, men were paid 2 to 2.5 times more than women in terms of hourly rates. And Anthony Albanese has warned miners the Morrison government is threatening their exports with its inflammatory rhetoric towards China, which, he says, is motivated by domestic political considerations. In a speech delivered to the minerals industry in Canberra on Wednesday, the Labor leader built on comments made two weeks ago by opposition foreign affairs spokeswoman Penny Wong, in which she accused the government of encouraging anxiety about war with China for domestic political gain. And Rupert Murdoch's News Corp Australia is an advanced talk with a consortium backed by high-profile bookmaker Matthew Tripp to launch a new wagering outfit that could reshape both the local industry and the battle for Tabcor's betting division. Matt Tripp and ASX-listed company Betmakers have made a bold $4 billion bid to acquire Tabcor. News Corp is also in talks with US media business Fox Corp, which is also controlled by the Murdoch family, to secure licensing rights to use the Foxbet brand for the new business. News Corp, partnering with the consortium linked to Mr Tripp, could also reshape the battle for Australia's largest bookmaker, Tabcor's TAB, after Mr Tripp funded a $4 billion cash and script bid by ASIC's listed wagering technology betmakers for the division on Friday. 
If Betmaker's bid for TAB is successful, Mr Tripp's involvement in both groups would likely result in, a, in it taking over Foxbet and operating the two brands side by side. And Arnott's plans to achieve net zero emissions in its operations by 2040 and across the value chain by 2050 and to reduce, reuse or repurpose black plastic packaging in Australia and New Zealand by 10%. It intends to make 100% of ANZ packaging reusable, recyclable or compostable by 2025 and sustainably grow and source 100% of its key ingredients by 2035. Arnott's, which already sources 90% of its key ingredients from Australia, has committed to buying 100% of its wheat, flour, dairy, sugar and canola oil from Australia and New Zealand. It will procure other key ingredients such as cocoa liquor and palm oil only through certified, audited or industry-led sustainable programs and will only work with suppliers who commit to its responsible sourcing and supplier code and are members of ethical trade group, SEDEX. And millennials and women are leading the way in the self-managed super fund, superannuation fund sector, the Australian Taxation Office latest figures show. Self-managed super starts to make sense with a balance of $200,000 or more, says the SMSF Association CEO, John Moroni. Those under 45 years of age now make up about 45% of all new trustees, the March release for the SMSF's quarterly statistical report shows. Furthermore, there are more women in this cohort than men, which was reflected across all age brackets except among baby boomers. And investing has entered a brave new world. The figures over last year showing nearly $200 billion of new money was poured into specific ESG-labelled products globally, and the total global assets in these products hit more than $2 trillion. The level of interest in ESG investing in the last 18 months has grown exponentially, according to BT's Head of Investment Research and Governance, Marnie McLaren. Demand spiked considerably in the aftermath of the bushfires followed by COVID, with a strong emphasis from investors on environmental factors, business resilience and supply chain factors, McLaren says. The recently released BlackRock Investment Stewardship Global Quarterly Report outlines how the global investment behemoth builds an understanding of a company's corporate governance and sustainable business practices. More pertinent is what BlackRock does if companies they're investing in are not addressing ESG risks, and most of the time the BIS team's course of action is to vote against the re-election of directors. In the most recent report, the BIS voted against 1,196 directors at one 549 unique company. And law firm Slater & Gordon is investigating a possible class action claim against the A2 Milk Company on behalf of investors who bought shares over a nine-month period during which the baby formula maker posted four downgrading, resulting in a 62% share price slump. Based on its investigations to date, Slater & Gordon wrote in an email to investors that shareholders who had purchased stock on on both the ASX and NZX between August 9, 2020 and May 7, 2021, may have a basis for claim. It alleges A2 Milk may have engaged in misleading or deceptive conduct in breach of the Corporations Act and possibly breached continuous disclosure rules pointing to four downgrades on September 28, 2020, December 18, 2020, February 25 and May 10, 2021. A2 Milk flagged on May the 10th a more rev- a review of its key China business and a blowout of more than 100 million New Zealand dollars, that's 92.9 million Aussie, in provisions for old stock. The latest cut to its outlook resulted in A2 Milk expecting full year sales of 1.2 billion to 1.25 billion and group EBITDA margins of 11 to 12 percent. This compared to August 19, 2020 guidance for strong sales growth and EBITDA margins of 30 to 31 percent. And Qantas is offering unlimited flights for a year among a pool of prizes for people who've had COVID-19 shots, the biggest incentive yet from an Australian business in a bid to accelerate the country's sluggish vaccination rollout. 
Giving details about the program on Monday, Chief Executive Officer Alan Joyce said 10 mega prices would give families of four free travel with Qantas and its low-cost unit, Jetstar, for 12 months. Previously announced rewards for fully vaccinated passengers include air miles, flight vouchers and loyalty program status credits. He urged other companies to take part in a Team Australia moment to speed up the nation's vaccine rollout by rewarding those who have had their jabs. There is growing frustration within the Australian business community about the slow pace of vaccination, with just 4.2 million jabs delivered in a population of 25 million people. Airlines are lobbying Canberra to bring forward a proposed mid-2022 date for reopening Australia's borders, a time frame that is hitting Qantas's international businesses. Companies worldwide with most to gain from a return to normal economic activities are dangling the biggest rewards for vaccination. United Airlines is also offering frequent flyers a chance to win free flights. After suppressing the virus, Australia is now struggling to overcome vaccine hesitancy. And business leaders are becoming increasingly vocal over COVID-19 vaccination take-up, with the boss of travel giant Flight Centre calling for vaccines to be made mandatory. Other major employers, such as Westpac and supermarket giant Woolworths, are offering to give staff specific time off to get vaccinated, while others are reminding staff they can access company sick leave provisions if necessary. Woolworths, which is one of the nation's four biggest employers, will provide up to four hours of vaccination leave for full-time and part-time staffers. Woolworths has also committed that no casual staffers will lose rostered hours if vaccination appointments cannot be sourced outside of rostered shifts. Alliance, which is contracted with major mining companies and operates numerous flights for Qantas and Virgin Australia, has issued the vaccination policy stating all employees will take part in the Alliance Group Reimmunisation Programme. Alliance is believed to be the first Australian company to mandate the jab. Contractors and their employers will also be required to be vaccinated to conduct work on Alliance Group work sites, the policy states. And JBS Food suspects Russian criminals are behind a ransomware attack that has crippled its operations in Australia. The cyber attack has shut down operations at the world's largest meat processor in Australia, Canada and the United States, sending thousands of Australia's abattoir workers home. Multinational company JBS, which is also the largest meat processor in Australia, has global information systems brought down on the weekend. JBS has a network of 47 facilities with abattoirs and feedlots in New South Wales, Queensland, Victoria and Tasmania. Though unaware of any evidence of the attacker's compromised or misused data tied to its customers, suppliers or employees, JBS said that resolving the fallout from the attack may delay certain transactions with customers or suppliers. It did not specify how its operations may have been affected. And the corporate watchdog has released its long-awaited advice on activist short sellers in an attempt to weed out ambush tactics used against some listed companies and to urge ASX-listed groups to properly respond to allegations. The new recommendations from the Australian Securities Investments Commission follow investigations of alleged short and distort reports by offshore research houses targeting Australian companies. The corporate watchdog's new advice is for short sellers and other research groups to release their report outside of trading hours and not just before the market opens. Short sellers and research houses will have to also fact-check their short theses with a company before releasing the information. This approach will give companies a time to enter a trading halt and prepare a response to the report before any short selling takes place. Short sellers have also been asked to not use emotive language in their reports. The advice was included in an information paper and are not official guidelines or laws. Enforcing Australian advice on offshore groups would likely not be possible. 
Short selling, which has long existed in financial markets, is the practice of borrowing securities from long-term holders and selling them on the market with the aim of buying them back at a lower price for profit. An IWF will take control of National Australia's Bank's MLC Wealth subsidiary at midnight on Tuesday, officially completing the bank's partial retreat from the troubled wealth management sector since the Hain Royal Commission. NAB has completed the sale of the MLC superannuation and funds management business it purchased off Lendlease in 2000, $4.5 billion. IWOF will pay $1.4 billion for the wealth manager, made up of $1.2 billion in cash proceeds, and a $200 million five-year structured subordinate note. The bank will no longer be in the business of superannuation or retail financial planning, but will retain its JB Weir private wealth management subsidiary. It sold 80% of its low MLC life insurance business to Japan's Nippon Life in 2015. And Ingenia Communities is backing a new loan to help the growing number of single, older women bridge the financing gap they need after a divorce or separation to buy a home in one of the company's communities. Women over 55 are the fastest growing cohort of homeless people in Australia. ASX-listed Ingenia is providing $3 million to prospective new customers via fintech startup Landlease Home Loans and has also committed seed capital to help the new company subsequently expand as a provider of finance to clients or of other Landlease companies. The typical loan would be $20,000 to $40,000 and the typical customer, a single woman in her mid to late 50s or early 60s, who was still working and wanted the companionship of a community but who had insufficient equity in her own home or from her share of a divorce or separation to buy outright, Ingenier Chief Executive Simon Owen said. And a global shortage in semiconductor chips is causing so much uncertainty that it's being likened to a second COVID-19 by Australian device makers which are grappling with surging prices and crippling lead time blowouts. The shortage has become so severe that chief executives of hardware companies are being forced to radically alter the design of their products to be made with chips that are easier to source or to consider, putting manufacturing on hold or increasing prices substantially. The most extreme price rise was for the popular STM32 range of chips used in many electronic products, which have gone from $2.80 to $100 each on the so-called grey market of unauthorised resellers due to their scarcity. These chips are now impossible to buy from trusted manufacturers, while many other chips and components such as flash memory chips, inertial measurement unit chips, Bluetooth modules, microprocessors and Wi-Fi modules have also had extreme price rises. And a new 200km transmission link considered crucial to enhancing the flow of cheap renewable energy around the country as coal plants exit is set to receive the go-ahead after Transgrid committed $1.8 billion to the project. Transgrid, which runs the New South Wales Electricity Network, confirmed a deal with the Federal Government's Green Bank had allowed to prove its investment in the New South Wales section of the long-awaited Energy Connect project, joining the New South Wales and South Australian grids. Projects like Energy Connect, known as Interconnectors, form a significant plank of the national strategy to modernise Australia's massive East Coast electrical grid, allowing favourable wind and solar output in one part of the country to be readily dispatched to others during periods of high demand. The increased availability and supply routes for cheap excess renewable electricity will also help wean Australia off its dependency on fossil fuels as more coal-fired generators retire in coming years. And Nine Entertainment said it has signed agreements with Facebook and Google following the Commonwealth Government's enacting of a news media bargaining code. The deal with Facebook is for the supply of news, video clips and access to digital news articles on Facebook news products for a term of up to three years, with a minimum amount payable over the period. The five-year agreement with Google includes the supply of news content, excluding video, for Google's News Showcase and other news products. Google will also expand its marketing initiatives across Australia's platforms. The amount payable is a fixed annual fee with modest growth in the early years. 
Linux for its growth in the publishing division EBITDA in FY22 over FY21 in the range of $30 million to $40 million. The forecast takes into account expected net revenue from the Facebook and Google agreements, the impact of the termination of Google's previous sales agreement on programmatic advertising sales revenue from March 1, 2021, as well as ongoing growth in subscription revenues for Nine's key mastheads. And that's it for this week. And my apologies for the sound quality in the interviews this week. There were issues with Zoom. And next week, I'll be talking to Frank Restuccia, founder and global CEO at Finder. And I'll be talking to IFM Investors Economist Alex Joyner about the outlook for the Australian economy. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you talking business next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.